I'm Steve Cornford. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to look at the Bible together now. Uh, a part of the Bible, uh, a book in the Old Testament called 1 Samuel. And I'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 16 in just a few moments' time. But first, let me ask, I've seen at least one. Are there any Davids here today? Any Davids in the house? Yes. Yeah, well, probably five I can see around the room. You're never very far from a David, it turns out. There are plenty around, uh, beloved, famous, and infamous. I was trying to think through Davids that we might all know or be well known. Attenborough, Beckham, Bellamy, if you remember him, David Bowie, David Brubeck, David Bailey, Cameron and Crockett, Dimbleby, Frost, Gower, Grohl, <laughs> Getter, <laughs> Hay, Hockney, David Jason, loads of them, Livingstone, Miliband, Mitchell, Niven, or your lower. It just goes on right through the alphabet. And, you know, I could get the whole wave, but I'd need to mention the likes of Schwimer, Tennant, and Walliams. Yeah, there's loads of Davids, but today we're going to look at just one. David in the Bible. If you like, the original David. And here's what you need to know first off. David, oh God, had strongly advised people against having a king in this bit of the Bible we're going to look at. It wasn't merely God's intellectual preference, uh, that is, if he had strong ideas on forms and types of government. No, it was much more personal than that. He told them, you don't need a human head of state. I will be your sovereign. I want to be your king. Don't faff around trying to be like other nations. Be my people. God appeals to them. Now, we're not told how much they listened or how long they thought about it. What we are told in the Bible is they said, nah, to God. They don't want to do that. They insisted they'd prefer to look like other nations. All the other people with a king. We want a king who can lead us and fight our battles, they said to God. It wasn't a good idea. Not a good idea at all. And it was never God's idea. Anyway, God being God, helped Samuel, his kingmaker, to anoint the people's choice for king. He was tall. He was a handsome man who, it turns out, couldn't find his own dad's donkeys. But he would really look the part. Now, I think we're supposed to notice a bit of irony it's curious, you see, they didn't want to appoint their national leader on the basis of competency. It was all about style. I mean, can you imagine a time like that at all? <laughs> so, someone called Saul was appointed as king. And guess what? It didn't go well. So, as we join the narrative of the Bible... The nation's only kingmaker, Samuel, 
uh, is pretty sad about it all. He's gutted. They've, they, as a people, have never been there before. And no one knows how to move forward. You could say that 1 Samuel 16 was written at a moment of constitutional crisis. If this was a period drama box set, then the rain would be pouring down as the camera pans around to sad Samuel. So why don't we look at the Bible together. I'm going to read 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? since I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul heals it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, oh, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get them, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. 
What a passage of the Bible. This is where it begins, where it all begins for one of the most significant people in the Old Testament, for David. It's significant because probably more than any other individual, this apparently insignificant shepherd, anointed as king, from Bethlehem points towards the anointed one, born in seeming insecurity, obscurity in Bethlehem. Jesus, the good shepherd. I don't know if you noticed, but David only gets a name check somewhere right near the end of the passage. Because actually this opening episode in David's life is basically all about God's choice. As we join the events of 1 Samuel 16, Samuel, the kingmaker, isn't doing anything except being pretty glum. He's a sad man. It's understandable, I guess. I mean, uh, the king thing was never Samuel's idea. And he also knew that it wasn't God's idea. And now it had gone terribly wrong with Saul. What was there to do or to say in those kind of circumstances? If I was Samuel, I don't know what you would do or say, but if I was Samuel, I'd be desperate to offer some kind of, I told you so. In this moment, I told you so. I mean, as a parent, it seems like the most satisfying thing to do or say far too many times, doesn't it? More often than it's actually useful. But we often feel like saying it. And that's why it's really striking to me that although God could have said, I told you so, to Samuel, and he could have said, Samuel, you're going to love this. Go and tell him I told you so. That is so not what he does at the beginning of this part of God's story. He doesn't say, okay, I went with a dumb human king idea. Look what a mess it's been. Just pack it in, people, all right? That's quite enough of your kings. I'll be your king just like I told you. Now do as I say. And he'd have been quite reasonable, quite within his rights, if you like, to say that. Thing is, although God loves our obedience, it's never just do as I say with God. God woos our obedience. He waits for it, he looks for it, he he wants to win our obedience. He's looking for it in our hearts. Neither does he actually say, uh, hmm, that idea didn't really work, did it? But don't worry, I'm God. I'll make it all better. Just step aside and watch me fix it all for you. Because the thing is, God wants our obedience. He waits for our obedience. Because he wants to change the world with you and me. He wants to do something with us together, with the responses of our hearts to him. It's never just do as I say from God. So what we actually hear and see in this opening moments of 1 Samuel 16 is God recognizing 
what's on Samuel's heart. Ah, you're pretty glum about Saul still, aren't you? He's recognizing that, and he's reminding him of the very different state of his own heart towards Saul. Okay, that's okay, I know Saul. I, I, didn't, I know he was never going to be king material. I'm okay with that. It's God's heart. Because for all, everything else that needed to change, all the circumstances, all those things, this whole nation in the Bible here is in, well, a jam. And a lot of things needed sorting out. God begins by addressing one person's heart. Samuel's heart. He goes on to share his own heart with Samuel. So about a king. I've seen a king that would be my choice. Because throughout this passage, God is looking at hearts. He's listening to hearts. And he's speaking to hearts. It's a big deal because his priority is always heart stuff with us too. If we rush past this, we could think, well, basically God sorts stuff out a bit like I do. And then when he comes to a really important decision, if he's going to pick a leader, I guess he's going to be quite thorough there, isn't he? So uh, he'll probably give them like a full audit and they get the sort of heart check bit of it. After all, they're a leader. Got to know their, check them out properly, haven't you? As if, you know, that on the big decisions, it will be slightly more deep, slightly more considered. No, God's priority is always to look at our hearts, to speak to us in everything. And that priority isn't changed by uncertainty, by difficulty, or previously unknown circumstances. God is the one who looks at hearts, who listens to hearts. He speaks to them. And as he looks at Samuel's heart, he encourages him to act obediently within his calling and his identity. He says to him, fill your horn with oil and go. This is Samuel the kingmaker. His job is to appoint kings. He's appointed one king and he was a duffer. And so God says to him, get your kingmaking tool back out, Samuel. Stop grieving be the person I have called you to be. Fill it with oil. Fill it with oil because you're going to need to use it soon. You're going to be ready for that. Be ready to speak for me, to call people for me, to speak my identity. So he's calling Samuel from a, from a needless grief back to faith and obedience. But it was going to take Samuel some real courage. Samuel lived a bit north of Jerusalem, and Bethlehem was a bit south of Jerusalem. So where God was sending Samuel was sort of via Saulville. Do you get that? Okay, people didn't travel around a lot like us. It wasn't like there was loads of people going everywhere. People basically stayed where they lived. If you were traveling around, it was a big deal. Oh, you're new in town. What are you here for? Oh, hello, Samuel. That's interesting. You're wearing your king-making horn today. Why is that then, Samuel? We've already got a king, haven't we? News was going to spread. 
like that. What is he doing? Samuel knew this was going to be dangerous, and so did the elders of Bethlehem, just as soon as they saw him. The challenge. There usually is some challenge in letting God speak into your heart, in daring to be obedient to him. We can get easily led in all sorts of other ways and just kid ourselves. I don't know if you've ever done anything, maybe egged on by other people against your judgment, against your better judgment, without really thinking it through, weighing it up in your heart. At the time, you kidded yourself, it could go either way. Of course, with the benefit of hindsight, you only ever knew it was going to go badly, right? Why did I do that? Look what they've made me do now. Maybe you're a sports fan and, and you've watched as the coach, the manager in the technical area makes a difficult call in the heat of competition that from the cool and comfort of your sofa, what I think we probably need to recognize is the non-technical area, you know exactly what they should do. You make that call, why did they sub them? Okay, you know it won't go well, and then it doesn't. You're like, oh, you knew it. Why don't they let me be manager? What is he doing? Why? Why? Trouble is, we're like Samuel. It's all too easy in the events of our lives to focus on what's happened to us, what's happened around us, what should have happened, but probably never will do, what never will happen now. What they've done, how fair or unfair it was, what they've made me do, and why that's so unfair, why I'm now a victim. We focus on stuff. Will it ever get done? How will it get done? What will it look like? Whether you're not in that kind of place today, God is looking at your heart today. God is looking at your heart. He's been listening to all the joys, all the sorrows. When you take a look in the Bible, that's what he does. That's what he's made us for. What is God hearing in your heart today? What does it sound like in there? What are you hearing of his heart today? What courage will that require of you? So Samuel heads off down to Bethlehem because God's spoken into his heart. Now, I'm not sure Samuel was expecting God to choose another king even, let alone to head off down to Bethlehem while Saul, the king, is alive. He knows that God didn't want one. He's like, well, good, game over. Back to plan A. I don't think Samuel was expecting God to choose another king. And that's remarkable. Samuel was the nearest thing they had to a resident God expert at the time. And he, Samuel presumed, when he gets there, oh well, if he's going to choose another king, it's bound to be another Saul. So when he lays eyes on the oldest of Jesse's sons, the tall, handsome one, he goes, bingo. There it is, Saul too. Saul reloaded. Bring it on. Well, 
That wasn't so bad after all. God, come on, we're quite a team here. I don't think he was expecting God to choose another king or to make the choice that he did. The Bethlehem elders weren't expecting king auditions locally anytime soon. Bethlehem could get wiped out by a jealous soul. What do you think you're up to down there, people? Little old Bethlehem, some upstart sort of town outside of Jerusalem? I don't think so. Even when Jesse heard that it might be one of his sons, he didn't expect it to be the youngest. Get your sons, Jesse. Okay, everyone. Okay, yeah, David, as you were. Right, everyone, we're going off to meet Samuel. This could be a pretty good day for you guys, so scrub up well. Someone's going to get lucky at the barbecue this afternoon. No one else knew who God would choose. No one else knew. It's not that, and, and don't miss what this is about, it's not that God searched high and wide for someone with a qualifying heart, and would you know it, the purest, loveliest heart of them all was nestling in the field next to some sheep, as if, oh, God had to look all the way to David of Bethlehem for that. Actually, what we get from this passage is that David was God's unlikely choice. It was shocking. What? A shepherd guy? What, the youngest? What, from Bethlehem? Are you serious? Is that the kind of person God chooses? God's choice is completely different. And God's choices are his alone. Later in the Bible, someone puts it like this. They wrote in the pages of the New Testament, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring things that are. I wonder how often we expect God to do the same thing again, rather than listening to whatever his choice is now. What would God choose in your life today? What is his now choice? How's he going to speak? We've got faith for the unlikely. But it could be God. That said, there is some sense too that God's choice was conditioned by David's heart response. It's a bit like the way God gets us to pray, your kingdom come. He wants us to pray for his kingdom advance because God's promised his kingdom will advance and he's promised his provision, his means in the cross to ensure it does advance. But he also loves to catch up our hearts in prayer for that too. It's something of the response of our hearts which God loves. And there must have been something of that about David. But this passage He's not actually saying that heart attitude makes real God followers. If it is, we'd be like, well, heart attitude makes real God followers. David had got his heart right. Sort your hearts out, people. Attitude, deal with it. All right, and then you'll be good Christians. Neither is it actually saying that appearance 
doesn't do anything. Appearance is irrelevant. So it's saying, it's okay. We can all be frumpy Christians. Sandals are good with socks or, or whatever is your notion of frumpiness. I don't know. If, hey, I, I dug myself a bit of a hole there. If you, if you like sandals and socks, God bless you. <laughs> can we just scrub that from the tape, actually? It wasn't even in my notes. That's definitely not a takeaway from the day. All right. Because the point is, it's not, I don't want us to get snagged up on the looks thing. Because it turns out David was quite good looking after all. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. Oh, but David's handsome. Oh, and look at his eyes. <laughs> no surprise, really. And this is a takeaway. Because God doesn't make ugly people. God does not make ugly people. You hear that? It's people. It's the sort of people who are fixated with outward appearances who've decided maybe that someone else is ugly. Or have decided maybe I'm ugly. God doesn't say that. What this passage is saying is that heart responses really matter to God. They're a big deal. And we miss that. We will so miss that if we only ever focus on outward appearance. Externals are helpful. They help us recognize people. By, we do that in lots of little ways. By appearance. I don't know if you ever do that. Sometimes you recognize someone. They're miles off and they're walking the other direction. We think, oh yeah, that's, that's how they walk. That must be them. Hold on, catch up. There's lots of little ways in which we can recognize people. Externally, that's great. But they do nothing to help us know them. The thing is, I think we've all practiced recognizing people by appearances in lots of little ways until we get good at it. I was struck by that a few Sundays ago. I'm here down at the front. My daughter's come in and she's trying to find me at church. And she says, oh, Dad, I couldn't find you. You were wearing a different shirt. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how you'd feel if someone said that to you. I'm like, oh, what? So she's noticed I have a certain sort of shirt. Is that right? You know, I'm, uh, what is a Steve shirt? I'm thinking, I have a certain sort. Uh, how does that go? Hmm, I'd be a little bit safer, perhaps. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, she's never going to find me in this, is she? What is a steep shirt? She said, I, I, I didn't recognize you because you didn't have a normal shirt. So what is that? Is that a dad shirt? Is that a Sunday shirt? Oof, I wear Sunday shirts, maybe. I'm like, oh, no. Not only that. Round two, she goes on to say, ah, oh, but then I did recognize you because you did that thing with your head that you do at church. <laughs> what, what thing? What thing is that that I do? I'm like, how's that? 
I, there's a head thing that I do at church. Please don't look, you know. <laughs> Next Sunday, if I'm on the front row, you, I'll look around, eyes closed, everyone. That's what we're doing. Unless you need the words and then up, you know. Oh, dear. But isn't that the issue with focusing on external appearances? All of a sudden, I'm terribly self-conscious. Did anyone get less self-conscious focusing on their appearance? I don't think so. Nobody did. And self-culture seems to be making us even more self-conscious, even more approval-conscious. You know, there I am thinking that at my close rail. What are you thinking at yours? Who is it, you know, what are you trying to look like? Are you thinking about yourself? Are you thinking about someone else? Are you trying to pick something to blend in? I don't want to get noticed. You want to pick something to stand out? I definitely do want to get noticed. I want to pick something that you think someone else is going to like. You're going to pick something you think they're really going to like. <laughs> oh, they love me in this. You pick something they're definitely not going to like. Yeah, I'm going to put that on. <sighs> we make too many decisions like that. We are inevitably, we think about someone in the wardrobe when we look in the wardrobe. What this passage reminds us is we should be thinking about God. Looking at the heart thinks about God and the things that we do. What's God going to think of that wardrobe choice? But the thing is, if practice makes perfect at recognizing appearances, and it turns out you can get quite good at it with practice, guess what we might need to do, what we might want to do for knowing hearts better. Maybe we could practice. We could practice listening more carefully. We could practice listening for longer. Simply waiting and watching for the outcome of their choices, their priorities. What does a person like that's life grow to become? How does that decision pan out in that person's life? Wow, wow, that's pretty good-hearted. Each of those themes shows us something more about their heart. At the very least, our focus will shift in a healthy way from ourselves, and from being unhealthily fixated on ourselves anyway. But you know what? If you spend more time thinking about other people's hearts, I think it's possible you'll see God in them. You're much more likely to. You're more likely to see God in them already. Maybe what they need in God. Be drawn to love them in the way that God loves them. And that is a truly great challenge for us from this passage. So God has spoken. God has chosen. Samuel has wrestled with his own heart and he's been reminded to consider other people's hearts more carefully. David has been anointed as king in the power of the Spirit of the Lord. 
And Jesse and Sons had a pretty unusual day, didn't they? They've seen God's choice. It's remarkable. Everyone's eaten pretty well, thanks to the heifer and courtesy of the kingmaker. Mmm, beef. So what happens next? Maybe someone, maybe everyone just makes a little more effort around Jesse's family, particularly his youngest son. Let's all remember to be nice to David. Maybe there's a plot, a revolution, or at least some sort of David for King campaign launch that should be put together. Actually, what we read at the end of this passage is Samuel goes home. He heads back to Ramah. He's still wearing the king-making horn. This time it's a little bit lighter as he goes back past Saul's house. Oh, hi, Samuel. Had a good trip. Uh, where did you go? Oh, okay. Nice time. Anything much happened down in Bethlehem? Oh, yes, a nice sacrifice. But it's business as usual for everyone else in Bethlehem. David's back to shepherding. A little while later, he gets some part-time cheese delivery work. But it's pretty harmless, not much else. Eventually, he got an opening for some harp-playing gigs at the palace. But that's probably more for another time. What happened? What happened is... They all carried on with the same ordinary stuff for their lives, didn't they? God had chosen, David's king, wham, bam, come on then, let's show them. By going to bed and getting up and looking after some sheep, and going to bed and getting up and looking after some sheep. Oh, how about tomorrow? Any sort of king stuff going on tomorrow? No. Uh, back to sheep tomorrow. What happens? Scholars estimate it was probably about 15 years before David became king. And for big slices of that time, he looked uncertain whether David would even survive running for his life, not ruling. Yet, if David couldn't be king without all the trappings of the palace, he would surely struggle to be king with it all. God didn't waste a moment. God was growing a king's heart. He'd chosen his king and he was speaking to his heart day on day, year on year. Even when we think it's all about getting stuff done, God He's looking at hearts, he's listening to hearts, and he's growing them. Every day, including today, is a day of small things. It's a day for waiting for God. Today is all about heart work. God's work and his call grow in the soil of our everyday stuff. Not a day to be despised, but a day to focus on real joy. I want us to do that in response to God. We're going to sing and worship God.